You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. salutation from Paul to Timothy, the charge that God gives to, that Paul gives to Timothy, instructions about community matters dealing with, within the body, uh, including um, the, the woman that Timothy needs to deal with, qualification for church leaders, the purpose of the letter, renewed charge to Timothy, widows and elders and servants, uh, final indictment of the false teachers, and then a final charge to Timothy. Uh, within this passage, um, chapter 3 is the one that deals with overseer, using the, the terminology of, um, of uh, episkopos, uh, overseer, or in, in modern terms, churches use the term bishop. But the word bishop has been so overused as church hierarchy, somebody way up in, in church government, that uh, it, it, it's, it's confusing to use the term bishop these days. What we have in chapter 3 is, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. He must have uh, live a life in which there are no accusations that would be believable. The husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing his own household well, and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Must not be a recent convert, may not, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be worthy of respect. And uh, the, the English word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos. Uh, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Must first be tested, and then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. And so the, uh, Paul, like he does in, in Titus, gives these examples of the kind of, of behavioral traits 
that should be practiced by someone who desires to be responsible in the church. And the word for episkopos, overseer, somebody assuming responsibility within the congregation. Deacon, somebody who wants to serve within the, the congregation. Um, and so those, those terms get used by Paul. And I don't think he's so much as um, outlining how to govern local churches as much as those who carry responsibility ought to be people of integrity. And before he gets there, in chapter 2, we have that classic statement about, I do not permit, and then it's the question of what is it he doesn't permit. Um, there's a statement about... Um, A woman should learn in quietness. A, wo a woman should learn in full submission. Okay. Um, so what is it that, that Paul is saying? Verse 12. Does someone want to read chapter 2, verse 12? Just verse 12. Out loud. Ah, she is to remain quiet. Okay. Exercise authority, right? Okay. Uh, help me out with, with uh, what is your understanding of exercising authority in the local church? How would you describe it? Exercising authority in the local church. Taking charge over a situation. Hmm? Taking charge over a situation. Okay. Taking charge over a situation. For example? Okay, so mediation of a controversy, a problem, okay? I think it's like in a church, like people, you know, like we're one body, but people have their own things that they do. Mm -hmm. So like in that, I kind of think of like, like a church community, like some people work with like children, some people are like the greeter at the door, some people, you know, help with like worship, like there's all different, like, kind of like leadership roles and even like just like regular people in the um like just like regular members even they have like leadership as far as like welcoming and like helping like create um like an atmosphere of, of god's presence like for for visitors and for for outsiders like coming into the church so i think like it's kind of saying like whatever like i don't say gifting but like whatever you however you help contribute like we need to be like continuously trying to, I don't know, maybe be better or like exercise that like leadership that you have mm -hmm. within the church, within yeah. like whatever you need. So. Okay. So is Paul saying that women should not do that? Mm -hmm. 
That's the question. Uh, I do not permit a woman to, and woman to teach, to exercise authority. Okay, but but what you've described uh, is that what Paul's saying? Women aren't permitted to do. And is Paul's permission uh, universal for all women, for all time, in all places, under all circumstances? You're you're not sold, right? Okay. Let's look at it. Um, All converts are encouraged to learn, to study, to grow, and to be discipled. Um, there should be a quietness and full submission. A quiet attitude does not mean a total silence or slavish obedience. It does mean a willingness to learn. Like in, in an environment like here, where uh, each of you have shown great respect toward me, uh, that when, when you're eager to ask something, I, I see your hand or I see the look on your face or I ask you for, for that. Uh, I don't feel like any of you have interrupted me in an, an improper way or any of you have tried to seize control of the class. Okay, But what if that's what's happening in the church with Timothy trying to oversee it? Um, what is it Paul is, is not permitting? Okay. Um, to answer that, we've got to we've got to commit ourselves to observe, to interpret, and to apply. I do not permit a woman to teach. Uh, some believe that Paul here prohibited teaching by women universally and eternally, in all places, at all times, under all circumstances. Others say that Paul is permitting women from teaching men, but it's okay for women to teach boys and girls and other women. Okay, have you heard that? That's how some people, some churches deal with it. Others say he's only permitting women who are not yet properly instructed or proven in their skill, their ability, their gifting. So those are different ways that it gets applied. Um, again, not to, not to pick on our Southern Baptist friends, but that's what they have been struggling with is um, women not permitted to be senior pastors. Uh, Saddleback Church in California, which is associated with Southern Baptist Church, uh, where um, Rick Warren is the pastor, 25,000 people worshiping together. They recently ordained three women to be teaching pastors on their staff, but they've got like 100 teaching pastors for all their different campuses. And so their lead pastor is male, um, but many of their associate and assistant pastors are women. And so the question came up at their convention this week, should the Southern Baptist Convention kick out Saddleback Church because they ordain women? So they decided to table that vote based upon this, this passage. So the, the, they, they're, not, they're not on the same page. And then what about the statement, uh, have authority over a man? Okay, I, I asked each of you to describe that authority. Uh, here's the rub. Uh, the Greek word that Paul uses in this verse is authentic. And it's the only time it occurs in the New Testament. Uh, every other occurrence of this term in other Greek literature, no other book of the Bible uses it, but other Greek literature uses it. 
it's a negative expression. It's somebody grasping after power. It's somebody dominating somebody else. It's somebody doing harm in order to gain power. It's somebody who has uh, malevolent intent. It's somebody who is a a dangerous actor. (laughs) Um, In Greek theater, Alphentane meant coming up behind another actor on the stage in order to grasp something from them. There's, there's one play that in the, in the instructions for the actors on the stage, uh, the one person is supposed to sneak up behind another person and Alphentane, hit them in the back of the head and steal their cloak. And so in that play, getting hit in the back of the head and having your cloak stolen on stage is Alphentane. Okay, that's the word that Paul used. I do not think that translators should associate it with authority. <laughs> they should associate it with grabbing something that isn't yours to have, or usurping authority, or dominating power. That, that's, that's really the kind of idea that should be behind it. Uh, there is a different word that, that could be used that means authority in the Bible. Uh, that word is, is exousia. Okay, you don't have to re- remember that, but just know there is a good word that means authority in the proper healthy sense. It's the one that occurs in Matthew twenty, uh, Matthew seven twenty nine. Uh, Jesus taught as one who had authority, exousia, and not as the teachers of the law. So Jesus had authority, but it's an entirely different Greek word. Matthew eight nine. I myself am a man under authority. This is when the the Roman centurion is talking to Jesus. I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes, that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. In the circumstance in which Jesus is miles away from the man's house, and Jesus just speaks, and the guy's daughter gets healed. Remember that? And so so the centurion recognizes Jesus has spiritual authority. And the word there is exousia. And so the Roman soldier says, I'm also a man under authority, exousia. So the word, there is a good word that means authority, uh, Matthew 9, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so that's Jesus exercising exousia authority. Uh, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. They praised God, who had given such authority to men, exousia. John 10, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord, talking about his life. I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So in describing Jesus with authority, the word is exousia, and it means the, the proper exercise of responsibility that's been granted from, an, from a person who has the right to hand down authority. Okay, It's the healthy understanding of authority. Now, Paul was familiar with that word. He uses it several times, uh, 2 Corinthians 10. If I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I'll not be ashamed of it. So Paul does talk about his own authority, uses the word exousia. 2 Corinthians 13, this is why I write these things when I am absent. When I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me. And he uses the word exousia, okay, proper authority. Colossians, you've been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. Again, it's the the normal, healthy exousia, which means authority. So Paul knew the word that meant healthy authority, proper authority. He uses it. It's used in the Gospels to describe Jesus in his teaching. 
But Paul doesn't use that one when he wrote to Timothy in chapter 2. He doesn't use the proper healthy word. He used the word that was used in the theater to mean sneaking up behind somebody, hitting them, and taking what doesn't belong to you. That's what the word means. And he doesn't use that. Uh, in in the, uh, the, the passage, he indicates uh, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay? Um, the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Um, this has been interpreted in different ways. Regrettably, some take this, uh, this passage as in some way showing that uh, Eve, and therefore all women, are weak, easily deceived, and will deceive others. Okay. That's not what I think Paul is saying. Adam's priority in creation illustrates the present situation of male priority in teaching at Ephesus. And Eve's deception illustrates the deception of the untrained and aggressive Ephesian woman involved in false teaching. Uh, others believe that the appeal to the creation account makes the restrictions universal and permanent. I don't think so. I don't think that by illustrating Eve makes it universal and, and um, permanent rather than it's specific. A certain incident in the church in Ephesus that Timothy is trying to resolve. And then he goes on in verse 15 to indicate that uh, women will be saved through childbearing or something to do with birth of child if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there's three different ways this has been traditionally interpreted, uh, three possible meanings. It speaks of the godly woman finding fulfillment in her role as wife and mother in the home, or it refers to women being saved spiritually through the most significant birth of all, the incarnation of Christ, the childbirth, or it refers to women being kept physically safe during childbirth, okay? And you may have heard of all of those or maybe one of those in particular. Uh, the one I've heard taught most is that third one, that women are protected by God during childbirth, according to this verse. Except history doesn't support that. Historically, childbirth in most cultures, at least before modern healthcare and medicine, many women, sometimes large portions and percentages of women died during their childbirthing experience. And so it doesn't make sense to interpret this verse as women being kept physically safe in childbirth. It doesn't seem to be speaking of godly woman finding fulfillment in her role as wife and mother and a, a, a baby producing instrument. And I've heard that taught. That, that's, to me, really misogynistic that women find their meaning by birthing children. And therefore, a woman is saved through giving birth in the sense of because she's capable of bearing children, that links her salvation. That, that, that contradicts Ephesians, where salvation is by putting faith in Jesus. Galatians, Romans, salvation is by, by confessing your sins with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and living and walking in that. Okay, that's where that's the connection of salvation. It's not that men are saved by the confession of their faith and women are saved by bearing babies. Does that make sense? Okay, so, which leaves us with that second choice, the childbirth. A woman is saved through the, the childbirth. Which one? 
the most unique childbirth ever experienced on earth. You know, Mary, the manger, Bethlehem, that, that. So, the, the, the best advice is observe carefully what it does say. So let's walk through some of the things that it does say. Remember, it's an occasional letter. It's a personal letter. Uh, th this is not addressed to the church in Ephesus. It is addressed to Timothy. Therefore, Paul is responding to Timothy's concerns. Now, he does want Timothy to read it to the church in Ephesus, but it is first and foremost a personal letter between the older apostle Paul and the younger but very godly and maturing Timothy who is now being the overseer of the church in Ephesus. And Paul does talk about women. Paul gives instructions to women, and he uses the plural women in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, when he says, I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And he does, in fact, use the plural and in Greek, there's a clear distinction. They're spelled differently. They're, they're inflected. Uh, in English, okay, somebody help me here. How do we distinguish between the singular and the plural of the noun woman? Hmm? One letter. Which letter is it? The E as opposed to the O. Which is really weird. It's very German. It's where the English language... Middle English was, was very much impacted by the Saxons and the Normans, who were Germanic. Okay? Uh, the Normans were, were Franco-Germanic. The Saxons were Germanic. And there was a lot of migration back and forth between the Anglo-Saxon, Wold, Normans, Celtics. Okay? A lot of migration back and forth. And, and their, their languages impacted each other. And so the old German... Um, uh, from which the English word womb is borrowed from German. Uh, the, the one with the womb, W-O-M-B, which is really, it's hard to pronounce, isn't it? Womb, womb. So, so the woman, the, and in the older German, it was the Wombban, and, and it got conflated some, from Wombban, Wombin, Woman, Woman. So it's, it, that's where it all comes from. But in the Greek, it's very clear, singular or plural. In verse 9 and 10, he's, he uses the plural. But in verse 11, he switches to the singular. And the grammar only makes sense if Timothy is having trouble with one particular woman in the congregation, singular, and Timothy has asked Paul for advice on dealing with that singular woman. Paul has switched from plural to singular. And in English, we can speak of, of women and we will we'll make it a universal and permanent statement without honoring Paul had switched to the singular, which implies there's one woman that Timothy is worried about and he's asking Paul, how should I handle this? And then we, and remember, we're listening to one side of the phone conversation, but based upon that, Paul's response switches from plural, you know, women, plural, ought to dress modestly, decently, propriety, 
good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. The woman should learn, the woman, the singular woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And he doesn't use an indefinite expression. He does use the definite article, the. Okay, I think that's important. Uh, the she in verse 15 is third person singular. Okay, uh, in verse 15. The woman will be saved. Uh, the she of verse 15 is the same woman in verse 11. And verse 12, she is the woman who needs correcting. And that's, and in the Greek, Paul uses the definite article, the, not a. So I'm, I'm concerned there that the translation can sometimes give a misleading understanding. So here's my translation. Under the conclusion, I'm drawing a conclusion that there's a woman in the congregation, one woman, who came into the faith from an Ephesian experience. Either she came from one of the temples in which women ran things, and she responded to the gospel. She loves Jesus. She's gotten saved. But she thinks she can come in immediately and be in charge because she used to be in her old <laughs> previous experience. And she's got plenty of experience with religion, but not this one. And so maybe she's kind of pushy. Not all women are, but maybe this woman is kind of pushy and grasping after power, which is exactly the word that Paul uses. Paul uses the word grasping after power. And so I'm concluding there's a woman who's guilty of grasping after power too quickly. I, I know some brash people. I know some aggressive people. And once they get grounded in faith, and they turn that, that, that aggression into passion for Christ, let them go. What they, what, I've met people that they were vigorous for whatever they were doing before, and they can turn that vigor and that vibrancy and that energy into good things for the gospel. But they need to get grounded. <laughs> they need to learn stuff. Okay, So I picture this woman. She's aggressive. She's pushy. She's grasping. And Paul says, let the woman learn in quietness and in full submission. I'm not permitting the woman to teach or grasp authority over the man. She must be quiet. I picture in class, in Bible study, in small group, let her be quiet. Okay, if she asks a question, go ahead and answer the question. Do some do some one-on-one -on -one time with her. Help her through the issues. But don't let her grasp after power. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was the one deceived. And it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner by analogy. But she, talking about the woman in verse 11, will be saved through the childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, they. Okay, he doesn't say the women. He says they. And because he's using the plural pronoun that's not related to gender, he's now talking about one woman and one man. Now, we don't do that in English, but in Greek, that's what you do. If you use the plural pronoun and it's not associated with anthropos or gunais, uh, a male man, a female woman, then the pronoun, plural, is talking about they, the woman and the man. So apparently, the, the aggressive woman has in some way impacted or influenced a man to support her in her thrust for power. Okay, 
That's the conclusion I'm drawing from hearing the one-sided statement from Paul. I can't prove it. But clearly Paul was not making a universal statement that women must shut up, women must not teach, and women must never lead in the local church. It doesn't say that. Okay, The Greek doesn't support that. So, is Paul addressing a problem that Timothy had with a specific woman teaching heresy, or, or in some way power, to a specific man? If they continue, the word they is the accurate translation of the third person plural used by Paul. This plural pronoun identifies not only the woman doing the teaching, but also the man whom she is deceiving. If Paul had been talking about women, he would not have used the pronoun. He would have used the, the Greek word for women, gunais which he does in verse 9. He knows the word. He's familiar with it. When he means it, he uses it. And so, with my interpretation, I assume Paul said what he meant and meant what he said. I, I trust Paul as a writer. And so, uh, to, to use the plural pronoun without assigning it gender, then it would mean the woman and the man, not women generally or universally. So is Paul addressing a problem? Uh, the verb continue is in the aorist active subjunctive. That's more than you want to know. But because it is, the verb's tense confirms that the instruction that Paul gives are designed for the woman and the man in question to two people who are active and alive at the time Paul is writing and not to those who are either dead in the past or not yet born, meaning women universally or women generally. He uses a form of the Greek that means right now. I am not right now permitting that woman to teach. As if, if she learns, goes to class, goes to Bible study, passes uh, Christianity 101, uh, church serving 101, hermeneutics 101, uh, goes to a DTS and, and does well in her DTS, then by all means, allow her to take responsibility and lead others and teach others. The condition is... Um, to, to let her learn in quietness and full submission. That, that's the key, verse 11. Learn with a quiet attitude and fully submitted to the instruction, like you guys do. I mean, this is what you've done. You, have, you are learning in a quiet attitude, uh, an openness to receive instruction, and submission to those who are over you. And, and that doesn't mean you're slaves. It doesn't mean you've turned your mind off. In fact, You've turned your mind on. So, how does Paul want Timothy to treat the woman in question? Mercy and love toward false teachers is one of the themes in this letter. It's not, you're a false teacher, get out of here. You're a false teacher, go to hell. That's not, that, you don't get that from this. Particularly because the assembly at Ephesus was a church filled with people from pagan backgrounds. Very few of them would have come from a Jewish background. And certainly very few of them would have come from a spiritually neutral background. They would have come from a pagan background. Most people had association with one of the temples, several of the religions, and most of the people, they were polytheistic. They were comfortable attending three or four temples depending upon what they got from each one. 
and they would go shopping. And and you could it, 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 none of the temples offered a, a full menu of all the things that you needed in life. You needed to go to several temples to get the kind of things that you needed to find the fullness. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal. That's the end game to to build disciples who have a sincere faith, are living with a clear conscience, have a pure heart, and they're given instruction on how to love one another, how to love Jesus, how to love the world. You know, going back to the original, love God, love neighbor, right? That's what Paul's talking about. But it requires instruction for that. And in a culture in which uh, they were ethnic, they were tribal, um, and whatever your ethnicity was, whatever your tribe was, you were better than other people. Well, uh, loving one another kind of defeats tribalism. So, Paul mentions how Eve sinned in ignorance. It was the woman Eve who was deceived and became a sinner. Uh, the entire first two chapters of 1 Timothy are leading up to Paul expressing sympathy toward and encouraging Timothy to display love to that woman teaching error. So if she's teaching error, Paul wants Timothy to show love to her. We know that Paul wrote this response to problems that Timothy was facing in Ephesus, but we don't have a list from Timothy of the problems he's facing. We have Paul's response. So based upon what Paul wrote, we can conclude these were probably the problems that Timothy were, was facing. It's a personal letter, not a general epistle. Like Galatians is a general epistle. Philemon is a personal letter. Timothy is a personal letter. It happens to be recognized by the early church as breathed by God for all of us now. And so we're reading a personal letter. Okay, deal with it. <laughs> That's what we've got. It's a personal letter. And proper interpretation requires us as readers to delve into why Paul wrote the letter in the first place, addressed to a person rather than directly to the community first. So, how does Paul want Timothy to treat the woman? When Paul is ready to draw the line in the sand, he calls out false teachers by name. Remember in 1 Timothy 1.20, he says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. But elsewhere, Paul might withhold a person's name while correcting their behavior, which he does in 2 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 5. He corrects behavior, but he doesn't name them. But clearly, the guy that was sleeping with his stepmother, yeah, maybe in the hope of their eventual restoration. So Paul is expressing hope that this woman will be saved by Christ, even though she might be in error. Verse 15, she will be saved through the childbearing, is a reference to the woman's salvation through the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation comes from the Latin. Well, the word that Paul uses is Greek. Technogonia. It means childbearing. The childbearing. It's not a verb. Okay, It's not the bearing of a child. It's the birth of a child. A noun. Okay, 
It is a noun. This is a reference to the birth of the Messiah who was born from a woman despite the deception of Eve. And so salvation is ultimately because the prophecy from Isaiah, unto us a child is, is uh, unto us a, a, a child is born, a son is given. Government shall be on his shoulders. That, that was the, the promise. Paul puts it in the terms of a technogonia, the childbirth, the birth of the child who would bring salvation. And there's only one who's ever been born that way. Okay, so it's not, not it's not the woman going to the hospital and having a, a baby. That's not what it's talking about. Scripture only expresses a prohibition on women teaching error. It's never prohibiting women teaching men. Okay, let me restate that. Scripture only expresses prohibition on women who are teaching error. It's never a prohibition on women teaching men. There's a similar passage to 1 Timothy in Revelation 2.20. In Revelation 2.20, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The problem with Jezebel was not that she teaches and leads. The problem with Jezebel was that she taught and led others astray. There's the problem. And so I don't think women should be restricted from teaching because they're women. But if a woman is teaching in a way that leads others astray, that particular woman should be under a prohibition until she unlearns the bad stuff and let her learn the good stuff. And once she does, release her, <laughs> endorse her, bless her, lay hands on her. Um, from its beginning, YWAM did a deep dive on this particular passage and every other mention of women in the New Testament. And so from its earliest days, YWAM has recognized the Bible has not restricted women from teaching or leading or, or carrying forth responsibility, teaching women and men, leading ministry, mission, preaching, proclaiming. And so YWAM has taken that position. I'm ordained in the Assemblies of God, which from its beginning, back in the early 1900s, did a deep dive on this and concluded that, that we saw God pouring out his Holy Spirit on men and women and men and women, and old and young, uh, giving visions and dreams and prophecy. So, but there, there are some church groups that take this passage and say, no, the Bible doesn't let women preach or be pastors. And they base it from this and similar passages. The people who misinterpret Paul and attempt to prohibit women from teaching or leading men are ignoring the entire tenor and teaching of the New Testament. God empowers his people through giftings and anoints his people to fulfill their calling through the Holy Spirit. The giftings of God are never distributed according to sex or gender. The calling of God is never limited according to physiology. In Paul's ministry, he commended women like Lydia and Priscilla and Phoebe and Unia and Lois and Anna and Tabitha, and the four prophetic daughters of Philip. Never overlook Romans 16. 
Romans 16. Oh, we've got, oh, um, greet Andronicus and Unius, my relatives who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was, before I was. They were saved before I was. Now, uh, Romans 16, 7. You can pick up Bible commentaries or do searches on the internet and you can find a whole lot of men claiming that, well, Unius is a man's name. Okay? Um, in Roman literature, the name Unius occurs rather frequently and it is always describing a woman or writing from a woman or to a woman. Uh, there are some names in some cultures that can be either a man's name or a woman's name. Um, Billy. Okay. Uh, let's see. W w what are some other androgynous names? Alex. Alex. Yes. Yes. What? What else? Taylor. Yes. Okay. Who? Now. Yes. Okay. Or in one language, it's it's a woman's name, Helen, and in another language, it's a man's name, Helen. Depending. Okay. So now, now, but there are some names that are very much rooted in traditionally by consensus with one sex or the other. Susan. Can you imagine a man named Susan? <laughs> Who? What? Now, now, in in the Greek and Roman literature, Unia is always a woman. I would conclude that the Unia in Romans 16 was a relative of Paul. We don't know what the relation was, cousin or whatever, okay? But related to Paul such that she's family and she went to prison. And was among the apostles. Now, some translators will say, well, it means that the apostles respected Andronicus and Unius. No, the Greek is saying among, within, within the camp or within the community of apostles. And so Paul is saying that Unius went to prison for her faith and was apostolic. And so he's seeing within her uh, whatever he means by apostolic, she had it. She was it. And so I'm, I'm one of those who says, let Paul say what he's trying to say. If he's saying that... Is that mine? No, it's... Or that thing. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, who is it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I would conclude that Paul's attitude toward women was that they were being used by God during his lifetime, and he did nothing to stop them from planting churches like Priscilla and Aquila. 
And take note that whenever that couple are mentioned, her name always appears first. Why is that? Well, we don't know. Suggestion was she may have been the one who had the, the leadership skill foremost, maybe. Um, but she was involved in church planting in Rome and in Corinth, and Paul collaborated with Priscilla and Aquila and opened a business with them. The whole tent-making business when he was in Corinth was with Priscilla and Aquila. And he commends his relative, female relative. And if women were required to be silent, how did the woman get sent to prison if she was silent? That's, you know, that's nonsense. So, um, I'm a Bible-believing, resurrection-proclaiming, servant that as I read these passages, I don't see Paul making a universal and permanent restriction on women from teaching others or from leading with proper authority. Because he didn't even use the word exousia, which means proper authority. And he's willing to elevate women, pray for women, commend women, and consider a woman apostolic and having gone to prison for her faith. Any questions on that? Yes. So why in like some translations, like I'm looking at this specifically, I know that we already delved into like the singular and plural in like uh, chapter 3, verses 9 uh, and 12. Um, but the translation in verse 11, let a woman, that in our language it really does refer to a, it really does give a person an idea of well, I have been discipled during the period in which the NIV was the primary trustworthy Bible for Bible-believing Bible-reading people in America. So the NIV is, that was coming out just as I, I got saved. When I was in college and seminary, many of my professors that I studied under participated in the translation committee. And so there were over 100 Bible scholars who were part of that translation committee. Other translations have come out since then. Several of my professors were involved with Wycliffe Bible translators who have, who have done translations around the world. The NIV had no women on the translation committee. Over 100 men, not one woman on the translation committee. One woman on the editorial committee. Elizabeth Elliott, the, the missionary, was on the editorial committee to review the editorial, uh, the, 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 how it read, how it felt. Not what it said, but uh, how the, the tenses, the voice, the mood, the punctuation, okay? Um, since then, um, the, 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 the committee that does revising has apologized for not including any women Bible scholars. Now, Elizabeth Elliot has passed away, but her scholarship as a Bible translator was excellent. Her degrees were from Wheaton College, and she translated the New Testament for the Aka tribe. So she had the skill to, to 
break down a, a language that did not have an alphabet. She provided the alphabet for it. She provided grammar for it. She had the skills. So her skills and her experience were beyond many who many men who have done translation. My understanding was when when First Timothy was in committee, there were five five men on that committee, and three of them. That uh, when there's a committee working on a translation, they'll they'll sit together and, and crunch out how to do the translation. And when they disagree, they put it to a vote. And there's always an odd number of people in the room, either five people or seven people. And then they would vote on which is the best way. And the, the professor told the professor who was there in the committee said two of us wanted to make sure that it was the woman. And I do not permit the that woman to teach. And the other three said, no, let's stick with the traditional women. And so it was a three to two, one vote, a, a three to two vote in that committee. And, and, and quite. I want you to have confidence in the translations that you have, recognizing modern translations are done by human beings. And for the most part, devoted to Jesus, desiring to do the best they can with the scholarship and knowledge and, and, and training and skills that they have, but also recognizing they are still human beings. And... I'm a 66-year-old white man, having grown up in America. I know that, and I've tried to come to grips with that. I've traveled the world, and I've tried to recognize there are other people in other contexts. And if they're reading the Bible differently than I do, why? Is it hermeneutical? Is it cultural? Is it, is it because my situation has shaped a worldview that I have not yet addressed, that I need to. I had a friend who grew up in Venezuela, and he spent time with, with us in, in our Bible study here in Virginia. I was a teenager. He said, you know, you American Christians are sometimes more American than you are Christian. I had to listen to that and ask why, and how can I be more Christian than I am American, without denying, you know, this, you know, I, I was born here. This is my citizenship. I don't want to deny that part, but in what way has my Americanism, my maleness, my whiteness impacted how I read God's word? And I will admit it does impact it, but I had better be aware of that so that I can go to Zambia and teach and teach honestly what the text says. So I can go to Nigeria and teach honestly what the text says so that it is God's word, true, in any nation, any culture, any tribe, any language in the world and still be true. And for me, that's a lifelong struggle. And I'll admit, sometimes it's a struggle. So that if you have only men translating it, should you include women in the translation committee? Yes and no, because here's the dilemma. 
should women be part of the translation committee because you need a woman's perspective? Or should women be part of it because they are qualified and because they will challenge the tradition if the tradition is wrong? Okay. And that, that's what I desire. That, that I'm committed to the scripture, but I recognize, okay, I grew up here in Virginia. My ancestors lived here in Virginia since 1635. My ancestors in Virginia and North Carolina owned slaves. And their church endorsed it. Their preachers taught it. I'm like, wait, 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 no, 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 that can't happen. So at some point, there's to be a recognition, okay, it might be traditional, it might be accepted by the church, it still makes it wrong. Who's willing to speak into that? So, but that's a much bigger issue, it's 530, <laughs> okay? What, what I'm saying is, women and men. The Apostle Paul did not hate women. I'm convinced Paul did not write in a way to keep women down or keep them in their place as if their place was not appropriate in teaching, proclaiming, leading, doing mission, um, prophesying, <laughs> being apostolic, whatever the gifting was. I don't think Paul wrote that, but many men have translated and interpreted and preached Paul in a way that they've made Paul's words put women down in a lower status. That is wrong. That should not be done. It should not have been done. I'm part of a denomination that ordains women, elevates women, encourages women, teaches women, releases women into mission, ministry, pastoring. Does that make me a liberal? Well, I mentioned that yesterday. No, it makes me somebody that I'm concerned that we interpret the Bible correctly. So, um, not, not everybody will agree, agree with, with me, but within YWAM, the tradition has been, uh, the scripture, especially 1 Timothy, doesn't restrict women from teaching and leading. Okay. And so, I, I've tried to give you the, 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 the Greek biblical scriptural basis for that. Now, you run with it, okay? Now, in the time we have, let me finish up this portion of 2 Timothy, which I think is his last letter. The content, it's an appeal to Timothy to remain loyal to Christ, remain loyal to the gospel, and loyal to Paul, including, uh, he, he takes another final shot at the false teachers that he previously wrote about, okay? Um, it's like Paul's got it in him. If there's somebody out there teaching something false, he's going to stick his, his nose in it because that's his mission. The recipients, it's to Timothy primarily and then secondarily to the church. Uh, the first you in chapter 4.22 is singular, and the final you in chapter 4 is plural. And so, therefore, it's directly to Timothy, but then he wants Timothy to share it to all of them. Okay, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with y'all. Grace be with all of you. Use guys. Use them. Okay? Uh, the occasion is that Paul has once more been arrested, taken to Rome, most likely from to Troas at the instigation of Alexander, and it's probably the same man who's disfellowshipped in 1 Timothy 1. And so the letter urges Timothy to come to Paul's side and mostly offers him a kind of last will and testament. 
Okay. Uh, the main emphasis, the saving work of Christ, who has abolished death and brought life to the gospel. Loyalty to Christ by perseverance and suffering and hardship. Loyalty to Paul by recalling their longtime relationship. Loyalty to the gospel by being faithful in proclaiming and teaching the word, the gospel message. The deadly spread but final demise of the false teaching. And then the final salvation of those who are in Christ. Um, the, the outline is the salutation and thanksgiving and appeal to join in suffering for the gospel and guard whatever's been entrusted from Paul to Timothy. The context for the appeal is these false teachers. The final appeal is proclaim the word. Keep on proclaiming the word. And then chapter 4 is the reason for the letter to urge Timothy to come to Paul quickly as if Paul senses that he, he's coming near his end and he's got that final uh, benediction of grace at the end. In chapter 3, he says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving. I mean, he goes on and on. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. He says, but for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So it's like Paul vents against those who, who follow those other extremes, but he lays it on, on Timothy. Here's what I want from you. In verse 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He, he sees it coming. He sees his end. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, his epiphany, his brilliant shining. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you and so Paul offers that as, as his final word. In, in a sense, that's like his last will and testament of what he expects of Timothy. And he hands it off to Timothy, and Timothy does a good job. What's the name of this school? DBS, Discipleship Bible School. In the desire that you grow as a disciple by reading through the Bible, that you grow as the disciple by having better understanding of every book in the Bible, its content, its context, why it was written, and that you be better equipped because of the Bible to make disciples of others. These 13 books have exposed you to things like justification and grace, humility and joy, the need to live a godly life while you expect Jesus to come back. Biblical love, Holy Spirit, power of God, condemnation, salvation, sanctification, relationships, unity, identity, spiritual warfare, and pastoral care. Justification. Um, dikaios is a legal term borrowed from the law courts. It means to declare righteous or innocent. The opposite of to justify is to condemn or to pronounce guilty. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith 
in Christ, not by the works of the law, because of the works of the law, no one will be justified. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death entered through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also, also through the disobedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And Paul likes to set up his, his presentations like dominoes. The dominoes fall. And he's, he's given an example. Okay, it followed the dominoes. Watch how it falls. And he talked about grace. Ah, oh, grace. Unmerited favor. Cut us. Unearned kindness. Galatians 1, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace. So that in the coming ages he may display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. And he wants us to get that feeling of, of it's immeasurable. It's unlimited. God's got plenty of it. Receive it. And then Paul talks about humility. Tapainao, being lowly, choosing or accepting. Willingly choosing a, less, a lesser status. In Philippians, talking about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Philippians, I know how to make do with little. I know how to humble myself. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. And God will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. And Paul wrote about joy. Joy, to enjoy a state of happiness, well-being, to know that in the midst of all the crud of this world, I may find well-being deep within myself to know joy. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. And so rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It brought Paul joy when he would hear that the people of a church were like-minded. They were all headed in the same direction with the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. The Roman Navy started out with a bunch of little ships. And the Roman Navy tried to take on the Greeks and lost. And they said, we've got to learn how to build better boats. The Greeks had started out with a couple of small boats and they wanted to rule the Mediterranean. And when the Greeks got out into the open sea, they encountered the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians had ruled the Mediterranean for a thousand years. Nobody, the Egyptians failed against the Phoenicians. The Assyrians failed against the Phoenicians. Nobody had been able to defeat the Phoenicians 
until the Greeks. And the Greeks made better boats. The Phoenicians had slaves on their ships with rows, and they had those sails. They would hoist the sails, and they'd have their slaves rowing. And the Greeks had figured out, you know, we, we can put more rows, more oars in the water. In fact, let's stack them. Let's, let's, have, let's have two levels, two decks. And so they, they, they built a, a dirame, not just one level, but two levels. And those two levels of oars could outpace the Phoenicians. And so the Greeks eventually beat the Phoenicians because they had better boats with a double layer of oars in the water. The Romans came along and they looked at those Greek boats and they said, boy, those are fast. They're the fastest things on the Mediterranean. Let's try three layers and let's not have slaves. Let's have free people. And every time we capture a Greek boat, let's take the Greek boat and our captain will now take the boat, but everything in the boat belongs to our oarsmen. Every, every coin, every piece of clothing, all the cargo, let the oarsmen split up the booty, the plunder. That really motivates. So the Romans built triremes, three levels, okay? Three levels of, of long oars. And the guys at the top had longer ones, but these were free men. They weren't slaves. They weren't being beaten. They weren't in chains. They ate well. They were fed well. They were clothed well. They were treated with respect. When we capture that boat, you get to go on that boat. You get to board that boat and you split up whatever you find. It's all yours. You get to take it home, take it home to your families, take it to the bank. And the Romans wound up with the fastest fleet known. And, and they talked about all pulling in the same direction at the same time. Like-minded is what they called it. Paul said, make my joy by being like-minded, having the same brain. There might have been 30 people on every level, 15 on each side, times three, 30, 30, 30, 15, 15, 15. That's 90. That's 90 men with oars. And if you do that all the time, you bulk up. I mean, their core was tight. Their arms were huge. They, they were buff. And they knew, if I keep at this, Whatever's on that, on that ship, and, and they, they would strip the interior of a ship because they were like-minded. That, that's the imagery that Paul uses. And Paul says, when you're like-minded, it makes me happy. When the local body of Christ, when a mission organization, when any movement of God has a bunch of people who are like-minded, their brain, 90 of them pulling in the same direction, 1,000 of them pulling in the same direction, 15,000 all in one mission and purpose. That brings God joy. Find joy in being like-minded. Paul talked about living a life, God, living a godly life while expecting the Lord's return. Many people, they, they get caught up in eschatology. Oh, we're going to get raptured. Things are going to get bad, but Jesus is going to pull us out before things get bad. And it's all about me being evacuated. Well, Paul said, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, his epiphany, and in view of his kingdom, I give you this charge. In view of Jesus coming back, in view of the second coming, number one, proclaim the word. Number two, be prepared in season and out of season. Number three, correct. Number four, rebuke. Number five, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. 
Number six, keep your head in all situations. Number seven, endure hardship. Number eight, do the work of an evangelist. And finally, discharge all the duties of your ministry. That's his eschatology. <laughs> yes, Jesus is coming back. Epiphany, parousia, apocalypse. Paul loved to talk about it, but never overlook the fact that Paul and the other writers, Jesus and Peter, John, when they deal with the, the end times, somewhere in there are instructions about proclaim the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage. Keep your head. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the other duties that have been apportioned to you. First Thessalonians, love each other. Do not be ignorant. Be alert. Be self-controlled. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. Encourage one another. Do not be easily unsettled or alarmed by false reports and prophecies. Stand firm and hold on to these teachings in view of the Epiphany, Parousia, and Apocalypse. So when Paul uses the end times terminology, he includes love one another. Do not be ignorant. Live a godly life while you're expecting the end of the world, the Lord's return, the Epiphany, the, Apoph the, the, the Apocalypse, and the Parousia. And then there's the theme of love, agape. Regard, affection, relationship, personal sacrifice, sacrificial love. You know, the classic is 1 Corinthians 13, but it's not limited there. You know, the wonderful, it really fits well at weddings. You know, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Okay, that really doesn't sound romantic to me. It sounds... Aggressive love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest impact is from love. So pursue love. Get on the path of love. Romans 13. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. No, leave no debt outstanding except the debt of love. Always owe more love and keep paying the debt. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love, do, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Ephesians, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and walk in love as Christ also loved and gave himself up for us. And Paul deals with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit at work in us in the world. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you have from God, you're not your own. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy within the Holy Spirit. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believe. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of your inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And Paul talks about the power of God, God's strength at work within us in the world. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. God has not given us a, a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and sound judgment. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we live with him by God's power. And salvation. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believe. And Romans says, one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Unity. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. Always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Carry one another's burdens. In this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. And finally, find your identity in Christ. Ephesians, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Because you are his workmanship, you are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for you to do. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And that to me is the goal of Paul's letters to see that transformation in you. Did he write that letter originally to you? Well, no, you weren't the original recipient. But God determined that you would be the ultimate recipient. Or at least for now. Now think about the next generation after you. If Jesus doesn't come back soon, you will one day get old like me on earth. When I'm done and gone and finished, will you tell the next generation to tell the next generation to tell the next generation be imitators of God? as dearly beloved children. You're all adults here, but you're young. But in your youth, you can have a passion that will not grow old and stale and dry. And you can have a joy, a joy that will be renewed by the Holy Spirit that will drive you for years to come. You have one more week of reading the Bible together. One more week to finish this three-month journey. Has this turned into you into a finished product? No, you're not finished. But in a week, you'll be able to say, I've read the whole Bible. And you know what it says. You might not remember everything it says, but you know what it says. And hopefully you can go back at any time, go deeper, go longer. And walk in love as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you. A sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. 
Now, it's hot in here. I know that. We've been at this for a long time. I know that. I've had three weeks. What an opportunity for me to spend three of your 12 weeks. I, I count that as a distinct honor. And it has been my prayer. I've, I've prayed before coming in that I be a blessing and a servant to you. That I, I come with a feast and, and you feel like you've eaten well as I've laid out the, the tray of food before you as manna from heaven, from, from Genesis to the Gospels to the Epistles. That's what a joy. That you be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love for you. The world needs to hear that badly. The world badly needs to hear of the love of God, how wide and deep, how great and unlimited it is. And sometimes use words, okay? Let me pray for you right now. God, I thank you for the time that you have given us together. And I thank you for the spirit you, you've placed upon these who committed to this discipleship Bible school. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen them through the end of this portion of the journey and give them a vision for the way you will use them after this. But Lord, above all, we ask that you may dwell in all of our hearts, rooted and firmly established, and give each of these a clear understanding of the length and the width and the height and the depth of your love, and open up new opportunities to share that with the next person and for the next generation. I ask that in Jesus' name.